Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Today is Monday, June 9th, 2008, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today, we have an opportunity to speak with the president-elect of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Mitchell Levy, MD, FCCM. He was the lead author of an article published in the June 3, 2008 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The title is Association Between Critical Care Physician Management and Patient Mortality in the Intensive Care Unit. The reference is the Annals of Internal Medicine, 2008, Volume 148, pages 801 to 809, and Dr. Levy will have an opportunity to hopefully add some clarity to these unexpected and uh, somewhat confusing and, to most of us, counterintuitive results. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Levy, for spending some time with us today on your important paper. My pleasure. It's great to be here, Rich. Um, Well, uh, before... I give my background on it. Why don't you take a few minutes and sort of introduce for the audience who who may not have read this particular paper some uh, background about the study, if you'd like. Sure. The study was um, a spinoff from another study that we had done on rationing. And for the purposes of that, we took the Project Impact database. So as many folks may know, Project Impact was an outcomes database that was started by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, I think in 1994, 1995. And essentially, institutions sign up to enter data into the software of the Project Impact database, and they get back measures of their performance on on various measures like antibiotic timing and length of stay, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get compared to similar hospitals across the United States. For the purposes of this study, originally we were looking at the impact on some of the 120 variables in the database on both length of stay and mortality. And what we found in that study was about 20 of the variables, and by the way, these variables are variables at a hospital level, beds, et cetera, et cetera, an ICU level, and patient variables like comorbidities and things like that. So we looked at that originally for the overall database and found that one of the variables amongst about 20 of them had a statistically significant impact on mortality, and that variable was whether or not patients were managed the entire ICU stay by critical care physicians. So, of course, we thought this would be a great opportunity to demonstrate the role that critical care physicians play in outcomes for critically ill patients, and we re-ran the database using that variable now as the primary independent variable. 
these were now 100,000 patients in the database and 79 ICUs across the United States. And to our surprise, as now is in the, in the published manuscript, in fact, the odds ratio was statistically significant and higher for mortality, risk of mortality, for patients who were managed the entire stay in the intensive care unit by critical care physicians when compared to patients who had no management by any critical care physicians at any time during their ICU stay. All right. Well, let me, uh, let me take a couple of minutes here and just sort of uh, flesh that out a little bit more with an opportunity uh, for, for uh, you to make comments. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a retrospective database, Project Impact. Actually, I, I worked in a hospital that was, that was in it. It's a clinical database. Uh, from what your paper said, I think about 123 intensive care units. And, and the concept was that there were two major divisions. One was a patient was either considered cared for during their ICU stay by an intensivist or not, and then the ICUs themselves were divided up into three groups, and I'm just going to go over them, and if I get anything wrong, help me out here. But basically, as you said in the paper, uh, and I, you had to make these dis- distinctions, but here they are. They said if you were in an ICU where patients were managed by critical care management uh, greater than or equal to 95% of the time, group B, the second group where there were ICUs between where the number of patients managed by intensivists or critical care doctors was between 5 and 95% of the time, and then Group C, an ICU where the number of patients managed by a critical care uh, doctor, the percentage of those patients was less than 5% of the time. Um, and then, as, as you just pointed out, when you looked at it, the, the, the two sort of big odds ratios that you point out, and, and again, if people are looking along in their paper, it seems to me that the big results are table four, where you said uh, if you were in an ICU where greater than 95% of the patients were managed by an ICU attending and you were, a, um, and you were managed by an intensivist, your what you, the, the, the term standardized mortality ratio, which is the actual mortality rate divided by the uh, predicted mortality rate, was 1.09. And then when you go to the other end of the spectrum, so you were in an ICU where you were cared for, where the percentage of patients cared for by intensivists was less than 5%, and you were not managed, and you were not managed by an intensivist, your uh, standardized mortality ratio was 0.91. And I, I, the part that was, was a little bit confusing was there must have been lots of discussions on how to divide up these different ICUs. And then the big picture in my mind is sort of picturing lots of ICUs where they may not be managed uh, by intensivists at all, and yet they're in the Project Impact database. And I thought that kind of background might help a little bit. Well, yeah, that is, this is the key to both understanding the study and also understanding the inherent weaknesses in the study. These categories weren't categories that we created for the purposes of the study. They're actually one of the ICU-level variables that's in the database. So these are, in fact, the ICUs that are in the database, and that is there are three types of ICUs. And I think this pretty much uh, reflects the ICUs in the United States today. There's an ICU that uh, in which almost 100% of patients are managed the entire time they come in the ICU by critical care trained physicians. Those critical care trained physicians are not necessarily full-time on-site intensivists, and that's very important to remember. 
These are these could be patients who are pulmonary critical care who have a, a busy office practice. Perhaps come see their patients in the morning on rounds and maybe see them uh, later again once uh, in the afternoon. But those patients, as soon as they walk in the door of the ICU, are managed the whole time by these kind of physicians. The, uh, on the other extreme are ICUs, and there are quite a number in the United States in which there are, is no management by critical care physicians. That means that when they're in the intensive care unit, they're managed by their general surgeon, their general internist, and in fact, critical care is not involved in directing the management of those patients. That's the less than 90, less than 5% of the time. And then the middle group, which is probably the largest group in the United States, is our ICUs in which some patients are managed the whole time by critical care physicians and some patients aren't managed at all by critical care physicians. So you can see we're comparing three very different types of intensive care units and what we try to do to compare them was adjust for severity so that we can case match them and compare them. Um, I know in, in when one is trying to publish either basic science or clinical science, uh, one of the key things that I know reviewers have said is this concept of biologic plausibility. And um, I think it's at least arguable in this study. Uh, one of the questions might ask is, why are you still asking this question? Why, why isn't the focus on a lot of the trials and tribulations that we as critical care clinicians already have, rather than asking such a, a broad question that that is may lead to confusion uh, about the kind of physician for whom many of us are sort of working in the background anyway. Um, maybe if you could take a few minutes, and I know you're very good at speaking about these kind of broad issues, maybe help, help out the averaging, average practicing intensivist. Well, you ask the key question in many ways, which is why, why ask it? And uh, the truth is we, we got the, these results as, as part of the original studies I mentioned before. And, in fact, we felt as investigators this was an opportunity to really finish the question, end it. And that is in a large database of 100,000 patients, can we show conclusively that management by critical care physicians in this era of leapfrog and the growing demand in the workplace, can we, can we build on what we believe to be proven already in the literature that management by full-time critical care folks really improves outcomes? So that's, that was our hypothesis going into this, this study. And we were, no one was more surprised, obviously, than we were uh, and uh, do I regret asking the question of the database? Not really. Science is science. Uh, were we surprised? Absolutely. We thought this was an opportunity to conclusively prove it. And I say that because if, as critical care docs, we take a hard look at some of the data that we have in the literature that shows the benefit of critical care docs, they're, they're all fairly small studies. They're all prospective cohort trials. And the study really hadn't been answered, the question hadn't been answered conclusively, so we did think this would be an opportunity to do that. So that's why we asked the question. I think we asked the question because of our confidence about the hypothesis. But the second question you raised, the second issue, that of biologic plausibility is really the interesting one. And I think, you know, these data are, there are, as I mentioned, a significant amount of potential flaws in the trial. 
we, we took patients in very large, we compared rather, patients in very large hospitals, in academic institutions with, who had no choice but were managed the entire time by critical care physicians, and then we compared them to completely different kinds of institutions in which are smaller, don't have um, critical care trained physicians available, and, be, and through severity matching and by developing a propensity score, we tried to compare these two. Inherently, in that process, there's a lot of flaws. So although we think we were able to case match them through severity, no severity score and no severity adjustment is perfect. So I, I think that's probably the primary flaw of the trial. That, that is that there, there is almost certainly some confounding by uh, residual confounding by severity measures that we just simply didn't pick up with an expanded SAPS-2 score and the propensity score. But I think it's also important for us to take a step back as critical care physicians and ask ourselves if these results are possible in some way. And where the biologic plausibility does start to sound like maybe it is there is if you look at our patient population in this study, and remember, what we did was we did a severity score, and we did a propensity score. So the propensity score in this case basically were, was developed in the institutions in which some patients managed and some patients weren't. And through a statistical analysis, we came up with a list of factors that potentially could drive patients being managed by critical care dogs. And if you look in the patient's who have the lowest number of propensity score, that is, the least factors which seem to like, uh, do they have a trach on admission, were they ventilated on admission, how sick were they, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at the patients who had the least number of those factors, they actually did the worst with critical care physicians. So one, as much as I hate to say this, the question really is, is there a patient population who perhaps doesn't really need aggressive intensive care, and, and in those patients, when they're cared for in an intensive care unit by a, a knowledgeable critical care physician, is there something that we do, whether it's procedures or the number of tests or just a general level of aggressiveness because of our training that actually may not be beneficial for patients? So I think that's where these results are certainly counterintuitive, but it is important for us to ask ourselves, could there be some factor here of, in, in these data? And the other point that I make in the discussion, that the authors make in the discussion, is that about protocols and standardization. And that is this. Is it possible that as critical care physicians, we have in so much confidence and belief in our skills and our training that we're less likely to develop and adhere to standardization of care and protocols, the kind of things that we also know really improve outcomes. So if there's some biologic plausibility, I guess I would point in that area and wonder if perhaps that's where some of these, some of the results may not be completely counterintuitive. I, I just wanted to make 
uh, a couple of points uh, just while I have this rare opportunity to speak with you about this. This I don't know. I find it a jarring paper. Is uh, one is uh, as an intensivist. I think that sometimes I may be working with a patient and a family and a and, and maybe a surgeon to help recognize when we may be prolonging things inappropriately, and that might actually not necessarily lead to quote unquote better outcomes when you look at the bottom line, but we may appropriately feel we're doing doing a better job. Do you want to try and address that? I'm, I'm trying to be as articulate as I can about that. Well, no, you're being quite articulate, and I think that's a very good question, and one that we asked ourselves when we were evaluating the data and analyzing it, and also one that we've been asked many times. And two things. One, there, were, there was no difference in the database of DNR, the percentage of DNR orders in the two populations. That is, the population cared for by critical care docs versus non-critical care docs. So it didn't look like the mortality was because of an increased uh, rate of do-not-resuscitate orders. And, and certainly the second thing is it, it would have to happen on a fairly large scale for us to have the kind of 18% difference in standardized mortality ratios between the two populations. So I don't think, based on our analysis, that the rate at which there's withdrawal of life support accounts for the differences in the mortality rates. You know, the one thing we haven't touched on, which uh, I, uh, we touched on in our paper a little bit, and certainly uh, Gordon Rubenfeld and Derek Angus uh, made a very nice case for in their uh, well-written editorial that accompanied the paper, and that is the team. It, we've long said in the Society of Critical Care Medicine that it's an it's a integrated team of dedicated experts. And, and by that, I mean the idea that one member of the team makes all the difference, I think we've long moved away from. And what we don't know in this trial is what was the team in place in these hospitals that seemed to do well without an intensivist? And what was the team in place in the hospitals that did have an intensivist? And I, I think the key to really good quality care is not just whether or not there's a critical care physician managing the patients, it's nurse-patient ratio. Is there good communication between physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and social workers and PharmDs, et cetera? I think we all recognize that the value of, of critical care is, is management, perhaps, by a, being captained by a, a critical care trained physician, but the members of the team are equally as important. And I think we really don't know from this study who is in place in these hospitals. And the other really important thing that we have to ask ourselves is about project impact. So if you think about it, I'm an intensivist. I feel I'm running a good intensivist unit, so I want to join Project Impact because I want to compare myself. I have confidence that we're going to do well compared to other institutions. But we have to ask ourselves, what would motivate an institution without management by critical care to enter data into an ICU database for comparison? So I, I guess what I'm suggesting is perhaps there's a self-selection of intensive units who know in advance that although they don't have management by critical care, feel real confidence in the way they run their unit, whether it's because of the integration of the rest of the team, the presence of protocols and standardized care, that that, to me, would make it more likely that they would want to be involved in a project database. So that, to me, is a very strong un potential unrecognized confounder.
Well, yeah, now that was going to be my, my concluding point as well, is that I, I saw that there was a, a press release from SCCM ex- exactly focusing in on, on your last point that the, this does not diminish uh, the uh, sense that the multidisciplinary team remains important and that this was focusing on one particular part of that, trying to tease that out. And and as you said, there's two ways to look at a study like this. One is to poke holes in its weaknesses, and the second is to say, okay, yes, it has weaknesses, but there appears to be a signal. What, what could that signal mean that we could try and do something about? And, and as you've tried to point out, pretending that the multidisciplinary team is still extremely important, there's potential signal there that things could be improved. And I just to try and summarize what you said to encapsulate it, number one is to refocus on the fact that good intensivists should still be focusing on trying to optimize their use of protocols for standardization of care where it's been shown to be helpful. Um, and then again, making sure that we aren't, I guess, providing critical care where it may not be appropriate. And three, to constantly sort of take a step back to say, are these procedures that we are familiar with necessarily helping people? Are those some some sort of nice bullet points for that? I think that's exactly right. I think that's well said. I do. And I, I think the only thing I'd add to that is what Gordon uh, and Derek pointed out in their editorial, which is until these data are confirmed, it really is one study standing against many. All this published literature suggests strongly that critical care physicians uh, are significant benefits in the outcomes for critically ill patients. And although this study is interesting and hypothesis-generating and is likely to gather a lot of attention, it's important that we, we remember not to let it turn into a kind of a political football, but it's science. It should be hypothesis-generating. It should make us say, what's up with that? Is it, are the results true? How can we, what kind of studies can we do that can confirm or refute these results? and keep it in the realm of science rather than politics. We've been speaking today with Dr. Mitchell Levy. He is the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit and a full professor at Brown University School of Medicine, and he is the current president-elect of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And we've been speaking with him today about his paper recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, focusing on the uh, interaction of certain mortality ratios and the presence or lack thereof of critical care clinicians. Thank you so much, Dr. Levy, for again being part of the podcast. Thank you, Rich. The Society of Critical Care Medicines, SCCM, second largest educational event of the year, Critical Care Academy, has been expanded further to include two additional pre-courses. Critical Care Academy presents practitioners with the opportunity to obtain an entire year's worth of continuing education in just one week. Held from August 3rd to 9th, 2008 in Chicago, Illinois, USA, Critical Care Academy consists of these five informative sessions. ABIM Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review Nutrition and Critical Care Fundamentals of Critical Care Ultrasound and the annual adult or pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses. With so many educational offerings in one convenient location, it's easy to understand the growing popularity of this annual event. For more information, visit www.sccm.org or ask to speak to a customer service representative.